0: Well, good morning. It's great to be back with you guys again for week two here. You know, last week, as Rob said, we talked about three myths that that really we named, renamed at the end of the message, three lies, that really can harm us if we are married or single, if we believe the message that it communicates and it impacts the way we're living out our relationship. So myth number one was that marriage completes you. Myth number two is marrying the right person is the key to a long-lasting marriage. And myth number three is a good marriage relationship should be easy. So those were three lies that we unpacked last week. And if you missed last week, I would really encourage you to go back as Rob did, and go back and listen. And I think it sets a a great foundation for where we want to go today to move away from the myths of the lies and really unpack what is profoundly true about the purpose and plan of marriage. You know, the main idea from last week probably could be described as, apart from Jesus, no one on this earth will complete us. That's just the facts. There's no person who can make you whole apart from a relationship with God. So this morning, we're gonna turn the page and we're gonna talk about God's ideal, his, his purpose and his plan for our marriage. If I were to throw out a question out in the audience and say, hey, you know, tell me what you think God's purpose for marriage is, my guess is that I would hear something like, well, it's a, the environment where we would have children and that certainly is a part of God's purpose for sure. Uh, companionship certainly would be part of that, or sexual intimacy is certainly part of that plan and that purpose without a doubt. But I think that at its core, there's something much richer, much deeper, and much more profound about God's purpose and plan for marriage. So this morning, as we talk about what this is, we're gonna talk about this ideal that God has handed down to humanity and he's handed it down to a broken humanity. As we talked about last week, every single marriage is made up, comprised of two broken people. So sometimes the ideal will break down. That's just what happens. And we, when that happens, we get thrust into the arms of a loving God and his all-encompassing grace, a grace that's always sufficient. I just wanna say that there are no sins, there are no sins, no mistakes, when there's a repentant heart that is ever beyond the reach of God's grace, not ever. So I want you to know that as we, we probe into the ideal this morning, I know that some of you are in here this morning and you've already suffered through the pain of a divorce, and it isn't something you wanted to have happen when you got married, that's for sure. Some of you are in second marriages. Some of you are single, but have been through the divorce. And, and I want you to know, as we talk about the ideal this morning, and it really is the ideal, that first of all, I just want to say, I'm just really glad you're here. And if you're in a second marriage, I just want to pray that this, this will be your last one, And if you're in that place where you're still single and maybe even still in some pain from having gone through your divorce, I just want you to rest in the grace of God this morning. And as you sit with Jesus, just know that there are no sins that our broken and repentant heart can ever, ever chase the love of Jesus from you. So we're glad that you're here this morning. You know, the first time that I heard what I'm about ready to share with you this morning, it, didn't, it did not change my marriage that day. It didn't change it that week. But here, here's what I want to say to all of us in the room. If you're in a place this morning where, you know, your marriage maybe is just a lot harder than you wish it was, and there's more conflict than you wish there was, or there's more silence, or there's just more isolation in your marriage— What we're gonna talk about this morning doesn't necessarily equip you with the tools to fix that, but what it does do, and I believe deeply that this is the place where God would call us to start, is to hear what the purpose of marriage is and allow God to reposition your heart, your attitude, your spirit towards God's intention for marriage in your life. That is the thing that changed in me. And now over the course of a 42-year marriage, I'm still in that process. And it has reshaped me as a man. It's reshaped me as a husband. It reshaped me as a father. Because truthfully, when I first got married, I couldn't imagine I really, I don't know that I understood how you could be in a relationship with a person who could sometimes so much disappoint you or, or maybe hurt you so deeply um, that like, wow, what's happening here? What in the world has gone on? I didn't, I didn't get married expecting to find it as difficult as it was. I realized I had taken a vow as a 22-year-old that I wasn't capable of keeping in my own strength. So my hope for you this morning, my hope for everybody this morning, is that you will open your heart, like just open that heart to a new understanding, a new posture of God's, towards God's purpose for the reason that you are in your marriage. You know, back in 2007, there was a... Um, a bridge collapsed over the Mississippi River up near Minneapolis. It was just a tragedy, 145 people were injured, 13 people died, not sure how many cars went over the bridge but it was under construction, it was being repaired or repaved, I believe, and there were a bunch of cars on there that were stuck in traffic, there was construction equipment up there and so one day, you know, there was just too much weight for the bridge and it just collapsed. Well, as they did an autopsy on that bridge, they discovered that there were some stress fractures in the structure of the bridge that had been there for quite some time that no one knew anything about. And so one day, when there was just enough weight on that bridge, the stress fractures were revealed in a terrible way. Well, you know, the truth is when we get married... Marriage is a little bit like the two-ton truck that comes over the bridge of your life. And all of a sudden, marriage puts us in a position to begin to reveal our struggles, our flaws, our character weaknesses, the things that we brought with us from our family of origin, the places where we're just vulnerable emotionally. All of a sudden, Marriage is like this two-ton truck that rolls over the bridge of our life and it exposes what we brought with us into the marriage. And, and trust me, there, there is nobody, there's no one that doesn't bring the stress fractures with us and oftentimes they surprise us as much as they surprise our spouse because until we have the daily pressure of living with expectations, living with the reality of having to all of a sudden learn to love another person in a way that you put their needs ahead of your own and our fractures just appear. You know, remember last week when we talked about the um, arranged marriage ethic of the Bible, we said that we don't marry the ones we love. We learn to love the one that we've married and really that happens because we just don't know all that we bring with us until we're actually walking in it. So as we ponder and for God's purpose for marriage this morning, I want to begin, I want to begin by asking this question, is marriage a contract or a covenant? This is where your notes begin. So what is the, what's the difference? What's the difference between a contract and a covenant? Well, a contract is essentially designed around self-protection. And here's what I would say. Contracts are not bad things, they're good things. We could hardly run, we couldn't survive in our culture, our business world, just in the world in general without contracts. But they really do, they're designed to self-protect and they're designed to help us manage our mistrust. You know, the fact is we, we are pretty determined to limit our own liability, our own responsibility for things. So before you have a medical procedure, you know, we sign papers that protect us and protect the doctor or the hospital. You know, we sign a lease so that the rights of both the landlord and the renter are protected. If you buy a car and you get a car loan, right, you sign a paper committing to repaying this loan. And if you don't repay the loan, of course, what happens? The lending company comes and gets your car. So a contract marriage allows each spouse to say, If you fail me, if you fail to meet my expectations, if you fail to meet my felt needs, I will either punish you by the way I live with you, or I will call off the agreement. And I don't know how many of us that willingly sort of walk into a contract marriage, although there are lots of ways that that's happening out in our culture. But when we actually walk into our marriage, it is very easy to live as though we've signed a contract. So on the other hand, a covenant is designed around trust and there is no out clause, there's no provision for self-protection. A covenant marriage is not based on stipulations and conditions. A covenant marriage requires each spouse to say, Even when you fail me, I will love you. I'll stay. There are marriages that, uh, you you know, this this covenant thing is designed to prevent us from living with a contract. You know, I just want you to know that I know there's some of you in the room that when I talk about this covenant marriage and I talk about that I'll love you, I'll stay kind of no matter what, I also want to say that we are in this broken world. We are. And marriages happen between two broken people. We've already established that. And so there are times when there is abuse and pain in a marriage where there needs to be intervention and there needs to be change. And so I just, I want you to hear that, that uh, this is not just a blanket statement, but I would say for the rest of us in the room, are you living as a contract or are you living like it's a covenant? A matter of fact, I want to go a little bit farther and even, even give you an opportunity to uh, have some different language around that. Every marriage in this room, every marriage in this room has what I would call a small story and a large story. And the small story is when we descend into this contract living. It's a you do your part and I'll do mine kind of marriage. It's a 50-50 compromise all the time. And so the world is all, it's it's a world where we're always assessing fairness and we're always thinking about our rights. I'll do the dishes if you do the vacuum cleaner. That's fair. So the small story is characterized by the questions, what about me? What about my needs? What about my joy? What about my happiness? Now, it's not that those questions are bad questions, but they can become harmful when they become the daily measuring stick for our relationships. And that's what can happen to us. We begin to live with this small talk of accusation and questions. Let let me give you another little quick picture of this here. See, I've got a nice little cup with some coffee beans in it, and I'm about ready to make some coffee here. This would be like the instant coffee type, right? You can see I've uh, got these beautiful brown beans and this nice uh, water added to it. Now I've got coffee, right? Yeah, <laughs> not really, huh? What, I, what do I have here? Is I have two things that are simply sharing the same space. And what this is, is that this becomes a picture of living in the small story. It's just two people sharing the same space. That's small story life. So let's talk about what's the large story about? What is this large story we're invited to? The large story calls you into a spirit-dependent covenant because that's the kind of relationship that God made it to be. You know, we might not have understood this when we got married. I'm sure, I know I didn't, but I would submit to you that the very concept of a covenant has a divine origin. Who in the world would have come up with an idea? Like human beings don't think like this. Yeah, I think that I'm gonna make an agreement with a person that I've known for a year, six months, two years, whatever. I'm in my 20s, 30s, whenever I am. And I'm gonna say, yeah, I'm gonna connect myself to you spiritually, emotionally, legally, in every way possible. And I'm gonna stay in this for the rest of my life no matter what happens. Human beings don't make those kinds of deals. We don't make those things up. I would submit to you that a marriage covenant, the idea of a covenant relationship is a direct gift from the hand of God to humanity. And that's something you really should, we, we need to pay attention to that. Where did this idea even come from? So what is true about God's covenant love for his people? God pursues imperfect people with his unconditional love for a lifetime. You know, that sounds a lot like a wedding vow to me, doesn't it? So, how how do I know that this is true? Because scripture affirms this over and over again. We we could do an entire message that would express thematically the notion of God's covenant love for his people from the beginning of the Bible until the end of the Bible. I have just a few examples here. In Romans 5:8, it says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That is an expression. That's a restatement of the idea that God pursues, move towards imperfect people. Sinners Right, He moved towards imperfect people, sinners, with his unconditional love, and he expressed that love by dying on the cross. <clears throat> it is a remarkable thing that God pursues us even when we stiff-arm him, even when we're not interested, even when we push him away. <clears throat> the next passage there <clears throat> says, For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. Hebrews thirteen five. It's just it's a it's a breathtaking promise of the covenantal love of God. And then Romans 8, you know, and I've told people lots of times that if I were stranded on a desert island and I could only take one chapter of the Bible with me for the rest of my life on this desert island, I would choose Romans 8. And the reason I would choose Romans 8 is because the very first verse, it starts off with this promise. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Wow. That's a covenantal kind of love statement, isn't it? And then in the middle of the chapter, it talks about the fact that we are adopted as sons and as daughters. And do you know what that, what, 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 that, what else that makes true? if we're adopted as a son or a daughter, that means our spouse is a daughter-in-law or a son-in-law. Just think about that. My my wife, Ann, is God's daughter-in-law as well as his daughter. And so when I think about that, how in the world do I want the young men married to my daughters to love them? So it is just this picture So Romans 8, 38 and 39, this is at the end of Romans 8. It says, for I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that of course is in Christ Jesus. These are just a handful of scriptures that highlight the breathtaking, covenantal love of God that was sealed by his death, burial, and resurrection. It's the way God loves us. So what is the ultimate purpose? If he loves us unconditionally like that, what's his ultimate purpose? It says your marriage is intended to be a lifelong parable of God's covenant love. And I would just translate that and say that lifelong parable is that it's intended to be a living story that expresses something true and powerful about the nature and character of God's love for us. So our marriages on this earth are designed to tell a story about the nature of God and about his love for us. I know this all sounds like like pie in the sky or something beyond our reach, and it is beyond our reach, without God, without his spirit in us, and we'll never live it out perfectly. That's not the point. What I'm trying to get us to see, and what I had to see, is that the reason that I'm married was for God to teach me, show me, equip me how to love another broken person. And every other relationship in our life we can run away from when it gets hard. A roommate, a friend, whatever we want. But the day that you step into this covenantal commitment, God is going to ask something different of us. You know, I had the privilege of marrying into a pretty amazing family, a lot different than the one I grew up in. And uh, one of the things Ann's dad did on a regular basis is, especially when our kids were young, is he'd arrange a family vacation for all of us, Ann's siblings and all the grandkids. And there might be in 20, 25 of us there. And this one year, we went to a, a state park in Ohio and had little cabins. And while we were there, we had a, one, one morning, we had a gigantic super soaker squirt gun fight. And uh, I mean, we were running around having a ball. And usually Ann's dad was always, right in the middle of this stuff. But for whatever reason that day, he was in the cabin taking a nap. And so my brother-in-laws and I decided that 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 just wasn't gonna be that way. So we busted into his cabin like we were the FBI. And we snatched him literally out of his bed, carried him outside, and tied him to a tree with a garden hose. Now, at this point, Ann's mom had been uh, diagnosed with cancer and and was sick and frail, both at the same time. And as we had him tied to that tree, we had all the grandkids and in-laws were all around him halfway with our squirt guns focused right at him, about ready to have an execution by water cannon. And then, just as we're ready to do it, Ann's mom, small, thin little Ann's mom, pushes through all the kids, and she goes up to her dad, Ann's dad, her husband, and she just goes up and she just covers him. Now, none of us knew what to do. We didn't want to shoot her. (laughs) It was not the point at all. We did shoot her. We did. So here's the thing. She covered him. You know, in this very moment, I never thought about that, but as I looked back on this, what I came to understand about that simple little moment is that that moment was a parable. It was a story being told right in front of my eyes about part of the purpose of our marriage. Because she covered him, she was willing to take the the water cannons on his behalf. It's what God has done for us. And it's the opportunity that exists for us to learn how to love our spouse to put their needs ahead of their own, for us to learn what it means to love somebody in a sacrificial way. So in a sense, we're, we're invited, if you will, to die on behalf of our spouse. You see, God pursues imperfect people with his unconditional love for a lifetime. It's the why of marriage. If you let God have that part of your heart and reposition the reason you're in your marriage. I'm telling you, it can, it can change your life over time. So every one of us wants a relationship with someone who will love us unconditionally, but how many of us really want to become an unconditional lover? And that's the work of God. I'm not capable of that apart from God's spirit. I know that when I got married, my definition and my understanding of love was way too small. I love, there's a quote here from Tim Keller from the book, Meaning, The Meaning of Marriage. I just love this quote. To be loved but not known is comforting, but it's superficial. Doesn't mean that much to us. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. And that, some of you are sitting here this morning as a spouse in a covenant relationship, and you're not known, and that happening to you in your marriage is one of your greatest fears going into it. But here's what I want you to know: to be fully known and loved, well, it's a lot like being loved by God. See the the first part of this purpose here is that our marriage was intended to tell a story about the covenant love of God. So I want you to think about it if you take the idea of marriage out of our culture, just take it out of our culture, which you know is actually there's a pretty good fight out there now about doing just that. If you were to take marriage out of our culture, there is not one other place in the in life where unconditional love, covenantal love, where somebody made a willing promise would exist. Wouldn't the enemy of God love to take that away? Wouldn't the enemy of God love to take away the living parable of the way God loves his people? And you and I, those of us in Christ, we have the privilege and the work of stepping into this posture and trying to learn what it means for God to change who we are. So number three, your marriage wasn't just intended to be a parable, but your marriage was intended to be a lifelong catalyst for transformation. A lifelong catalyst for transformation that moves us towards oneness. You know, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5 in verse 31 takes us all the way back to Genesis chapter 2. It says, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, or he'll cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. There is this constant connection between the mystery of the unity of Christ with the church, with the Father, and with the Spirit, and with us, with each other as a husband and wife. And you know, that word there where it talks about being joined in the Hebrew that literally to, to cleave or to be brought together literally has this idea of bone clinging to flesh. And bone is not supposed to break away from flesh. So the reason that God hates divorce has nothing to do with God hating divorced people. The reason that God hates divorce is because God understands how incredibly painful bone tearing from flesh can be. That's why God hates divorce, because it, it's another distortion of this gift he tried to give us, and he knows again the pain it brings. So from the day that I got married, Ann and I made a promise to each other. We made a promise, a covenant promise, and it was the covenant promise that made our marriage. Our commitment was a choice we made right then and there that binds us to a future course of action. That's what covenant is. It's this this opportunity to work at learning to be unified, to learn oneness for a course of a lifetime. A covenant says to broken people, this is what a covenant speaks to broken people, that I'll be sexually faithful even when my sexual needs are frustrated by my marriage. I'll be emotionally and sexually faithful even when my companionship needs are frustrated. I'll be faithful in my communication and forgiveness even when I never want to speak to you again because you've wounded me so deeply. I'll be faithful in sharing the work responsibilities of family life, even when I can barely put one foot in front of the other. I don't know how to do that apart from the work of God within us. I want to show you a little picture. You've got those triangles down in your handout there. You know, you have one triangle that expresses the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit on the right side. And on the left side, you have a new trinity that was formed when you were married. And you'll notice the way that that works is that the husband and wife are on the bottom of those triangles. And what would happen over the course of time, and in some cases over the course of a lifetime, if the two of you slowly but surely learned how to walk with God, how to surrender to Christ, how to listen to God's spirit, how to find relationship with God, And each time that you did that, every little bit that you move towards God, you move towards God. What happens when you do that together? You move towards each other. Now, there's going to be starts and stops and fits and stops and all of that, and it'll never be smooth, just like those two tennis balls happened. But the idea, and I speak to you as someone now that's been in this for 42 years, The idea is that you can move towards one another as you move towards Christ. It was designed to work that way. You'll see that text in Ecclesiastes there where Solomon's writing with his wisdom even a couple of thousand years prior to the New Testament. And he ends that that, uh, admonition about the strength of two over one with the idea that a cord of three strands cannot quickly be torn apart. And this is invitation to us of life in the spirit. We need to allow our marriage to teach us to reach out and trust the spirit. There's gonna be seasons when God will allow us to come to the end of our own strength in our marriage that we might finally learn to rely on his So the last little picture I want to talk about this morning comes from Colossians 3, 12 through 14. And I'm only going to, that whole text is a beautiful picture of this, but I'm only going to talk about the first sentence this morning. And it says, so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved. You know, we sang a song this morning. We poured out a song this morning. I am who you say I am. Over and over again, we poured that song out this morning. Look what those words say. You are chosen. God chose you. You know, the day that I prayed and I received Christ on Ann's living room floor in her apartment in college, kneeling in the floor, and I believed that I chose God that day, and, and I did to the best of my ability to understand. But you know how life works. You know, you understand life moving. You, you, you know, life has lived forward, but you understand it backwards. Like, you understand it better looking backwards. And so now I know that I've been chosen God chose me. And then it says that you are, you're holy. And what the word holy means is set apart. It means you, you've set each other apart. And then the last one says you're dearly loved, and that's agape love, which means that you have been, he loves you sacrificially. You've been chosen, set apart for his sacrificial love. On August 25th, 1979, I looked at Anne and she looked at me, and I chose her and she chose me. We set each other apart that day and we set our relationship apart from every other relationship we would ever have, including our children. This relationship would be the priority relationship of our life until death do us part. And that's what we did that day. We set each other apart and we said, I will dearly love you. So I'm committing myself to a life of sacrificial love, whatever that's going to mean. And listen to me, as sure as this shirt is red, I have failed more than I've succeeded. Like I'm not talking about anything here that's simple. (laughs) So what are the practical implications of life in this large story? Because that's what we're talking about life and the large story. The first one is you've made a permanent commitment. You've made a permanent commitment. Here's what our covenant does for us. When we go through the inevitable hard times in our marriage, when our heart has been reshaped or refocused on the purpose of marriage, I'm in this covenant so God can teach me, change me, shape me, make me who he wants me to be. When that's true, the marriage covenant works for us when we're in painful seasons. The, the covenant gives us time to breathe. It gives God time to work. We're not threatening to leave. We're not walking away. We made a promise. And we're gonna give God time to work. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said one time, he said, it's, it's the, eventually what happens is it's not the love that keeps the marriage. It's the marriage that keeps your love. What a great quote. And, and there, there will be in every marriage this space that is created by our covenantal commitment that gives God space and time to work in us. It's so valuable and so important. So that's our first one. We made a permanent commitment. Um, the next one is you've made a lifelong commitment to growth. There's never a time when you look at God and say, you know what? this is who I am, love me or leave me. Sometimes we say that to our spouse though, don't we? Hey, this is just who I am, take it or leave it. Can't you love me for who I am? Now, it is really great for you to look at your spouse and say, I'm gonna do everything in my power to love you for who you are. But what I really hope is happening in the other person is they're saying, I wanna grow past that place. So an example for me, I mean, I came into marriage and, and my greatest avenue to humor was sarcasm. And that's the way it was in my family. Most of my friends enjoyed that. Everybody thought it was funny, great fun. Oh, everybody in my life, everybody in my life thought that except Anne. And so for 15 years, I argued with her about why can't you let me be who I am? I don't understand that. Why can't I be who I am with you, like everybody else? I can, but you. What do you think God was trying to speak to me about? I don't. I'm not worried about what God was speaking to Ann about. What do you think God was speaking to me about? So for 15 years, I argued for the right to hurt her. It's what I did. I don't do it anymore but it took 15 years for me to listen to God's spirit about that. So you've made a lifelong commitment to growth. You've made a lifelong commitment to forgiveness. You know, when we, when we don't forgive, it's like you step on the air hose of your relationship. And, uh, you know, next week, Ann and I are going to be up here together and we're going to talk the whole morning about forgiveness and repentance and what that looks like. We're going to talk next week about that. You're always adjusting your life towards unity. You know, in the very first moment when God gave Adam and Eve to one another, the only command that God gave to Adam really was to leave and to cleave and become one flesh. All three of those commandments were primarily purposed around one thing, unity. That's what they were, that whole thing was about leaving, cleaving, and becoming one flesh it was all about unity. Unity is the work of our marriage. It requires a continual willingness to surrender to God. It requires a continual willingness to put another's needs ahead of your own, to speak the truth in love, even when we feel afraid. Unity is our work. And here's, I just, you know how, how Ann's mom covered her dad in that little parable moment? Just what I want to say to you is unity for a husband and wife is spiritual covering for them. You know, if you, if you had to move, or if you moved here from out of town, or if you ever had to do that, like we've had to do it several times, and if maybe one of you had the choice to move because you had a, a new job and it was a great opportunity, you had a choice to move, but one of you just did not want to go, and the other one said, ah, we're going. And it may not have been that cut and dry, but you never, you never found unity in it. You, you did it; the other person came along because they came along, did the best they could, And then you get here, and it all goes wrong. Nothing worked out like you thought. How different do you think it would be if a couple prayed together, struggled together, told the truth together, and then finally grabbed each other's hands and came and moved? And then when it all went south, they did the entire thing while they were holding hands. The response is completely different. And unity moments happen in little tiny things and big things daily, weekly in marriage. I just wanna encourage you that unity is our work in marriage. It is our spiritual covering from God. So finally, some of you here this morning have drifted into the small story. You just have, you know, we're living with what about me? What about my needs? And you keep asking something of your spouse, but you rarely get it. Like, listen to me more, talk to me more, help out more, have sex with me more often. When was the last time you asked something of the Holy Spirit? Help me love more. Help me listen more. Renew my heart. Give me strength. Help me forgive. Have you ever really trusted God to change you? Because that, is what our marriage covenant is all about. That's life in the large story when Jesus is the main character. Now one last thing I want to show you. I want to bring our coffee back and then I'm going to be done. Now we're gonna gonna take a look at a really nice cup of coffee here. See this one here we still have uh, pretty much got two separate things sharing the same space and now those two things have made this beautiful blend. Now, the only way that you get to the blend is that when you take water and you heat it up, I guess best coffee, you're supposed to heat it up between 195 and 205 degrees, near boiling. And when that near boiling water gets over the beans and seeps into the beans, then the beans get softer and eventually steam gets created inside the beans and they open So what happens is, in order to make this kind of blend, both elements have to be willing to be changed. And this cup represents the covenant that's holding both of these elements as they take the time, as God gives them the time and space to let God's Spirit change them. That's the purpose of marriage a good cup of coffee. (laughs) Father, help us surrender to your purpose and plan. Lord, this doesn't fix all our problems today, but God would you reposition our hearts to trust you and the large story that you've called us to live and teach us, Lord, how to surrender to you, to walk in unity with one another god help reposition our hearts this morning in jesus name amen